Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publishers of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we'll be talking about time, traitors, betrayers, and lots and lots of cats. It's The Clocks, the 2011 Poirot episode starring David Suchet as Hercule Poirot. But as usual, let me introduce first my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Hello, Teresa. Hi, Bill. So let's get on with uh, the clocks. All right. The clock is ticking. The clock tick, is ticking. Tick, tick, <laughs> tick. <laughs> Even if they're all telling the wrong time, the clocks are ticking. This is a story that is one of those that in which you start out with a ton of weird things happening, a ton of weird clues. Well, first there's the prequel, which was not in the book. And this was part of the move to 1936 because it's all about spies and stolen secrets and it takes place at this mysterious base. At, it was Dover Castle. Yes, there's a castle apparently in Dover overlooking, I guess, the cliffs of Dover because it's a really good location to put a castle so that you can repel those Frenchies. And I am sure that when William the Conqueror came over, and he probably came over at this location because this is the easiest spot, as soon as he landed and took over, he said, you know, I need a castle here <laughs> to defend my coast of my new conquered country. And so they've got this enormous castle and they're in the catacombs under the castle, supposedly, discussing spies. And I think it's actually 1937, not 1936. Okay. So 1937, and they're discussing, and this is something that we're seeing for the first time in a Poirot episode in a while. You have people who are concerned about the coming war. Now, it is true that nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody had any idea of what was actually going to happen. But in 1937, it was less than 20 years since the armistice was signed. Everyone there either had fought, remembered the war, had relatives who fought, or if they were born after the war, they had to listen to their relatives and friends telling endless stories about the Great War. And there was a great deal of anxiety about what was happening on the continent, and it rarely crops up in the Poirot episodes, but this time it did. And I think that was a great way of handling the time change from 1963, where you have commie spies in the Cold War. Now you have traitors to England selling secrets to the Germans. And what we're seeing here underneath it, uh, underneath the castle at Dover is a woman seeing another woman. They're both co-workers there. And she sees a woman taking secrets and tucking them away and racing out at the building. And she follows him. She calls, first of all, she calls Colin Race. She calls Lieutenant Colin, who is busy in a card game and about to win a lot of money. And he blows her he off. He blows her off. And this is his girlfriend. And she's whispering in the phone, my God, I'm seeing this happen. And he's not listening. Yeah, he is totally not listening. And it does make you wonder about what kind of of the quality of his secret agenting. And he sure doesn't take after dear old dad, who is supposedly Colonel Race, a very underused character in the Agatha Christie canon. And this was a change from the novel. Because in the novel, he uses the name Colin Lamb, as in a wolf in sheep's clothing. The text implies very strongly that he is Superintendent Battle's son. But Superintendent Battle has not appeared in the Poirot series. He was replaced in Cards on the Table because he wasn't going to be turned. (laughs) 
into a lying homosexual who allows blackmailing photographs to be taken. Superintendent Battle bowed out and was replaced by someone else. And so in a way, it makes sense to turn Colin Lamb into Colin Race, Colonel Race's son. But his father would have told him when you get whispery, panicked phone calls from the girlfriend, maybe you should pay attention. But he's a young man and <coughs> this is, he just has a lot to learn. And what ends up happening... Fiona follows Annabelle out into the night, discovers where she goes to. She writes down a hasty, cryptic note so that she can remember what it is, confronts Annabelle. They struggle in the street and before they can be shot to death by both of them, probably, they're hit by a car, the two of them, and they die. So that gives guilt trip for Lieutenant Colin. Oh boy, he feel he's feeling very, very guilty. And also frees him up for the role of the of the next romantic encounter, which With is uh, Sheila, Sheila Webb, Webb. Yes, who is a typist at a typing bureau, an innocent person about to be caught up in a web of lies and deceit. And and it actually works really well because he is Colin is grieving. He's horrified. It's his own damn fault if he would have been paying attention, and he is perfectly primed to have a panic-stricken damsel rush into his arms and beg him to save her. Which is exactly what happens because she is assigned a job to appear at this house at three o'clock. And if no one's answering the door, go ahead and walk in and sit down. And she does. And she does. And she's in a sitting room in which there are four or five clocks around. There, there are five clocks in there. She has a very nice wristwatch, which she checks the time, and it is three o'clock, and there's a cuckoo clock. And the cuckoo clock is important because, of course, the cuckoo clock makes a cuckoo sound at the hour, which means that Miss Pebmarsh, who is blind, knows what time it is because the clock tells Ms. her. Miss Pebmarsh is the house that she's that our typist yes. is in. But there are four other clocks in there, and they are all set at four 13 and she's looking at these clocks and thinking this is really weird am i late and then she sees the clock that says rosemary on it and she is really taken aback and then oh my god miss pebmar shows up and she discovers the body and she runs out screaming right there's a body behind the couch that she hadn't noticed before and she runs out screaming into the arms of lieutenant colin yes the uh and and it is the perfect setup and Folks, do not believe for one minute that Agatha does not write romance and does not write seething passion, because this is absolutely the setup for a romantic novel where our damsel is terrified, horrified, desperate to be saved. She rushes out directly into the arms of Mr. Wright. Yep. And I have seen this. <laughs> I've read a lot of these books. And as a result, she's the main suspect in the murder. Because, because she found the body. She that's, found the that's body. That's traditional. The blind lady who owns the house, who lives there, she's well out of it. She has an alibi. She was out at work. At and a she has no studio. idea. Who, she, this is where it gets complicated because, of course, the blind lady, Miss Pebmarsh, has absolutely no idea why Sheila Webb was called to her house. She doesn't have higher secretaries. She knows nothing about this. Somebody is using her too. And she's upset as well because she has no idea what's going on. So Lieutenant Colin calls on Poirot. As well as the local police. He gets Poirot involved. He gets Poirot involved because they suspect Sheila and he knows she didn't do it. He is positive she didn't do it. Absolutely positive because of the way she acted when she ran out. The best actress in the world couldn't have acted that well. Which actually, Blind panic. Yeah, which actually does show up. There's a Nero Wolf story in which Archie is asked about a similar situation. 
and in his case, he sees the color drained from the woman's face when she saw the body. And he said, you could be the greatest actress in the world, but you cannot control a physical reaction like that. So I can also see from Colin's point of view, this could work here as well. Yeah, and I think that it does work because he, he sees her in that moment and it doesn't come across as false theatrical or showy she she has no idea what's going on she is terrified she is panic stricken he is a complete stranger and she is begging for help because oh my god she just about stepped on a body and she has no idea what's going on and at the same time he's clearly besotted with her so inspector hardcastle just has to look at him being kissed at the inquest by her and say yeah i can't trust anything he says and Inspector Hardcastle is not wrong to think that way. Obviously, because this is a Christie novel, um, you know, Inspector Hardcastle is going to be wrong and Poirot is going to be right. But at the same time, 99 times out of 100, he's not going to be wrong. And you have to go with the odds. Right. So Poirot inserts himself into the case. And of course, he has friends at Scotland Yard who vouch for him. So Inspector Hardcastle has little choice but to go to ahead and put up with that little Belgian. <laughs> a little Frenchy. A little <laughs> Frenchy, Frenchy, yes. Uh, I'm Belgian. Yes. Inspector Hardcastle has to put up. Up with it. So all this takes place at a crescent. Yes, it is a which is a curved street with houses on both sides, and, and the this gardens, is all involves the neighbors. Yes, and the gardens back up against each other, and that's very important because of the way the neighborhood is arranged. Even though people don't, they they aren't having block parties, not this group of people, but they all know each other fairly well, and they know each other's business fairly well because, of course, you're always there moving out and about. The inspector and Poirot and Colin interview the neighbors on either side of Miss Pebmarsh, one of whom is Mrs. Hemmings, the crazy cat lady. And this is some of the most amazing special effects you will ever see in a Poirot series. Her house, her garden filled with cats who are all interacting with each other and interacting with her and interacting with Poirot and Colin Lamb and Inspector Hardcastle. And they must have been smeared with tuna oil to get the cats to be that cooperative. They were very cooperative kitties. And I'm always impressed when I see a whole, I don't know what the compound noun is for a group of cats. You know, you have packs of wolves and flocks of sheep and murders of crows. And I'm sure there is something for cats a clouder that sounds familiar she has several clouders of cats <laughs> in this place but even so there was only there were certain times when you realize okay the cats had enough because they're doing close-ups of faro and the lady and she's interviewed in the backyard holding an amazing huge white fluffy kitty a persian probably based on that fur that fur must have been six inches long and an again an amazingly tame kitty willing to be to tolerate this but so, amazing special effects folks absolutely amazing not the kind you think is really not an explosion but this is actually more impressive than an explosion because <laughs> cats do what they want so we have Mrs. Hemmings. We also have the Blands, Val and Joe. And they live in back of Miss Pebmarsh. And then on the other side of Miss Pebmarsh is the Waterhouse, is a brother and sister pair of academics. And then in back of Mrs. Miss Pebmarsh is... Well, there's Christopher Mabbott. 
Uh, Christopher Mabbitt with his two daughters. Munitions. Munitions, thank you. Yes, he works for a munitions firm, so he travels to the continent on a regular basis. Because he sells weapons to France, so he goes back and forth frequently. And the Blands, Val Mm -hmm. and Joe Bland, and they're a very nice couple. Yep, they're very uh, pleasant, and they they love each other clearly, and Joe is kind of wishing that he had seen anything because he loves being- It would have been so exciting. It would have been so exciting to be involved in a murder investigation. And he didn't see a damn thing. There were other neighbors in the novel, but again, for the simplification purposes of a TV film, you really only need the people on either side of Miss Pebmarsh and the people who live directly in back of Miss Pebmarsh. And there were certain characters who were removed. So like seeing the laundry van, that role was assigned to Mrs. Hemmings, the crazy cat lady, saw the laundry van pull up on a date when it normally wouldn't. And again, this is one of those weird changes in time. You would not have your own washer and dryer, especially in 1937. Even in 1963, everybody did not necessarily have a washer or a dryer. And certainly in England, England being much more backward compared to the United States in terms of home appliances and plumbing and heating and uh, HVAC systems. So you would have a laundry service. And every this is why detective novels are always looking for laundry marks, because the laundry mark tells the laundry service with their big industrial machines who owns this set of sheets, who owns this sweater, this blouse, this man's suit, so that when they wash everything together, they can sort it out and deliver it back to the right house. And so the laundry service would show up on a routine basis. They would have a schedule. They would pick up the laundry and then they would drop it off clean and washed. So there's a lot here that Boirot and the police have to sort out. Who is the man that was found in Miss Beb Marsh's house? And, How did he come and to they be do there? tell you. They tell you that all of the tailor's marks and all of the laundry marks have been carefully removed from his clothes. There's only one piece of identification, and that is a business card, and that business card turns to be made up. Right. And who called the typing service to send Sheila Webb there? Why was she asked for in particular? And what's the significance of the clocks? All saying 413. All saying stopped at 413. And they discover also that at some point the rosemary clock disappears. So there's four clocks. One of them has rosemary on it and it vanishes. And also at the same time, Sheila is panicked about being the suspect. She even receives a card in the mail. A threatening note. A threatening note addressed to her, R.S. Webb, on the envelope saying, remember 413. And as somebody said, was it it the inspector said all it needed was to be written in blood? No, that was uh, was Lieutenant Colin. Lieutenant Colin said all it needs is to be written in blood. And that was actually a very subtle clue on the envelope. That was a very subtle clue, and I'm only realizing it right now. And again, Poirot may have realized this because he looked at it. It was addressed to R.S. Webb. Sheila uses her name Sheila with an S. So why does it say R.S. Webb? Right. And the only person who would know that besides Sheila is her boss. Because Sheila is an orphan. Sheila is an orphan, and Rosemary is her first name, and she does not use that first name. She uses Sheila. So this is a situation as well when she's brought in, and she the police have essentially arrested her and are questioning her, and she's refusing to say anything. But Poirot uses that clue to unlock her. And I, I was thinking about this last night and writing about this book of tropes on how to solve cases like Christie. 
clues don't necessarily point to who done it. They can, I mean, they can, but they can also be used, like in this case, to unlock a witness. I would add to that to to point in another direction because Sheila Webb is known to all everybody as Sheila. Why would the note addressed to her say R S Webb instead of just S Webb? And the answer is that somebody knows that her real first name is Rosemary. And how many people would actually know that? None of her co-workers would know that. None of her secretarial clients would know that. Nobody living in Wilbraham Crescent would know that. The only person who could possibly know that Sheila's first initial is the letter R would be Miss Martindale. The owner of the typing agency. We haven't gotten into this. There's also a very strong mystery element here. Poirot is at a play featuring Sven Herjerson. Sven Herjerson, Ariadne Oliver's hero. Maybe this is a follow-on to the play that was finally written after um, Mrs. McGinty's death. Mrs. Yeah, she went ahead dead. And, she went ahead and had a play written. And and he's considerably younger than her 60-year-old detective. That did not look like a 60-year-old detective to me. His beard would have been a lot whiter. It reminded me, I was wondering if we were going to be watching a George Bernard Shaw play, because that looked like a Shavian figure, because he's known for that huge beard. It looked like a Santa Claus beard, <sighs> folks, except for the color. But it turned out, no, it's a mystery play. And there's also a mystery writer who is involved with the typing agency whose books Poirot has read. Yes, Gary Gregson is what I want to say. Gary yeah, Gregson. Gregson, and- which is also a name of a Sherlockian detective. There's an Inspector Gregson in the Sherlockian series. So I wonder if Agatha borrowed that. I'm sure she did. I had no idea. <laughs> yep. I had no idea. But yes, the Gary Gregson is inside Christie World. He is a well-known detective novelist, and he writes complicated plots with interlocking clues. When you think about the Golden Age detectives, I'm thinking of she parodied a lot of them in Partners, Partners in, in Crime. Crime. And I think it was Freeman, Freeman, Freeman Croft, Wills Croft, Freeman Wills Croft, who's Books all centered around complicated alibis and complicated plots and interlocking timetables and things like that. So she is actually parodying a specific kind of writer, the kind of writer who goes in and out of fashion, because sometimes people want to read really complicated puzzle plots and sometimes they don't. Gary Gregson wrote complicated interlocking plots. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And again, like the laundry service, we're seeing something that doesn't happen anymore, that hasn't happened in decades, a typing bureau, unless you had your own typewriter. And a lot of people didn't. Certainly in the 30s, they, they weren't as ubiquitous in the home. And even into the 60s, you would not necessarily have a typewriter. A writer would have a typewriter. But it was perfectly possible that you would handwrite your manuscripts, rewrite them, and, you know, again, handwritten, and then you would hand in the handwritten manuscript to the typing bureau. A young lady would be assigned to type your manuscript. That was her job. These young ladies would also be stenographers. They would go out to a client's home. They, they, would pro- they might bring the typewriter with them in a case, or they would bring their dictation pad, or they would bring their stenography machine, and they would take dictation and write everything down. And nobody does that anymore, unless you're at the super high end, because we all have home computers and we just type and there's the words on the screen. Even if the writer typed their own manuscript, they would hand edit it. And then they need a clean copy to submit to the publisher. So you hire somebody else to do that because all you need to do is just sit there and, and record all the editorial marks. And then you know also that a professional typist is going to make a lot fewer mistakes than a writer. 
Yes, particularly if they do the hunt and peck. <laughs> they need somebody to blaze through this quicker. This was a traditional job for a lot of young ladies until they got married. That reminds me, I actually did that. I worked for Raven Type in Charlotte as a typesetter. I worked on the CompuGraphic machine, and there was a publisher called Second Chance Press, and I was actually typing in the manuscript into the CompuGraphic machine that turns out print-ready copy because they didn't have a way of, of transmitting it properly. I mean, especially if all you have is a paper manuscript, somebody had to sit there, and that's what I did. Even as late as the mid-'80s, you still had Typing somebody, you, you could still have somebody who need, whose sole job is to be a typographer. And all they're doing, all I did was type into a computer. What happens with the young ladies who are typing in manuscripts is they are, they're reading essentially first draft material. They're reading first draft, maybe second draft material. And if, depending on how blazingly fast you are, you, uh, Miss Cavendish or sorry, Miss Martindale at the Cavendish Bureau, and they never tell you why it's named the Cavendish Bureau, like she bought out a company. But she has several typists. It looks like she's got at least five young ladies typing for her, plus herself. She has probably dozens of authors, as well as small businessmen, doctor's offices. You, you don't have any idea how many people she types for, except that that was a valid business of the time. And of course, for the young ladies doing the typing, they're reading all of the current novels, whether they want to or not. Yes, there was actually a very funny moment in the beginning where uh, one of them, Nora Brent, is is reading this florid romance and i think christy mentioned it was basically was it did she actually use the word pornography yes how how bad pornography can be really really dull and nora is reading this aloud as she's trying to put herself back into the find where she was and she says you know and he threw her down onto the soap and said no wait sofa and she sofa. reaches for the er she reaches for the eraser because the word had been written down incorrectly this also plays into the subplot and why sheila webb was the target because she had a regular weekly meeting with professor purdy at the hotel at the where professor purdy lived in and again this is something that we don't have anymore a lot of places had something called a residential hotel this was very common it ended up being uh, legislated against because oh my god people were doing what they weren't supposed to do and progressives did not want to see residential hotels whether they were flop houses at the low end or they were ultra expensive hotels uh, palace hotels at the high end but anyway a residential hotel you would rent your room and you would have depending on the quality of the hotel you might or might not have a bathroom that you had to share but you would have a, the hotel maids would come in once a week and clean. They would change the sheets and you got your meals downstairs in the restaurant and you lived there. So Sheila Webb goes off to see Professor Purdy. She has a standing appointment. She's an orphan. She has no family. She is desperately lonely. And so she ends up having an affair with Professor Purdy because she is so lonely and so unhappy. And she is desperate for human contact, for someone to say you matter this was a real improvement on the film over the novel. In the novel, you never really get a good reason why Miss Martindale chooses Sheila Webb as her patsy, other than the clock. But in the film, you get two reasons. You have the clock, which she can use to implicate Sheila, but Miss Martindale does not like Sheila. She really doesn't like the fact that Sheila is whoring herself out with that professor on her dime even though she's getting paid Even for it. Even though she's getting paid for it. In room 413. 
Right. That's the significance of the clocks and the message. And the other significance of the clocks is, of course, it came from a short story that Miss Martindale had typed up years before a Gary Gregson short story that she had typed up and she remembered the plot. She had all of his papers. She had all of his papers. So all she had to do was when uh, the opportunity came for the real murder, she just had to look through and pick something that would work that would be basically cover up everything that was happening with a lot of uh, frills and furlishes and furbelows so you don't see the essential murder underneath. Which also explains why Poirot was so interested in Gregson, because he sees the, the, the book covers on the wall and he knows the author's work. And he was annoying Inspector Hardcastle because Inspector Hardcastle is trying to ask questions about the murder case. And Poirot is asking Miss Martindale, do you handle all the typing for Gregson? Gregson. Oh, you know, yes, where of are course all the I papers did. for it. Oh, my, this is so interesting. And just driving Inspector Hartcastle up the wall. <laughs> but this is a wonderful example of Poirot doing what he does best, what he says repeatedly in the novels and the short stories. If you can get people to relax and talk about something unrelated to the crime, they will reveal what you want to know, which they would not reveal if it was connected to the murder. And so he finds out from Miss Martindale, oh, yes, I was Mr. Gregson's personal secretary and he gave me a legacy. And that's why I was able to buy this typing bureau and I have all of his papers. I still oversee his estate. So she has all of his papers, which means that she has all of his plots. Poirot does exactly the same thing with Val Bland, who is supposed to be from Canada no family in this country and in a personal conversation with her while they are chatting about the weather or basically you know how nice it is to live in england and he says and so why did you choose to live in dover oh my sister lives here and that was the slip up poirot was saying oh are you from montreal i have people there and she says no no i'm from i think manitoba and poirot is joking about how if you talk to a canadian just like you talk to an englishman you say oh i know somebody in manchester maybe you know them <laughs> I know England's a small country, but not, not that, that small. <laughs> but yes, she reveals something that she wasn't supposed to reveal, which is that she has a sister in Dover. So what are the odds that two Canadians are living in Dover, one of whom is a sister, and yet, yet you are not seeing the sister? What are the odds? And yeah. the odds are it's not true. And it's a complicated plot. This is what I call plot chaff. There is too much plot. And one of them deals with the spies at the castle that Colin Race was investigating. And the other one is the murder, which Sheila Webb is involved in. And this, the murder Sheila Webb is involved in, is actually a plot among Val and Joe Bland and Miss Martindale to conceal the fact that... A stolen that inheritance. A stolen inheritance from a Canadian relative, which was supposed to go to Mrs. Bland. The first Mrs. Bland. The first Bland. Mrs. Bland, who's now dead. Yes, this is the second Mrs. Bland. And again, there was a subtle bit... In the dialogue, which if you watch it the second time, you will see Joe Bland tells Poirot, I was at a low point in my life and I was at this show and I saw her. Well, why was he at a low point in his life? Maybe because he had just been widowed. 
what happened with Joe and Val Bland, which they didn't expect, which is why they this is where you set up a coincidence. You use a coincidence to get people into trouble, but you can't use a coincidence to get people out of trouble, is that when Val and Joe Bland and Miss Martindale planned the murder and they were going to use Miss Pebmarsh, who lived on the back side of Joe and Val's house, because they knew that she lived there, they knew her habits, they knew she was blind, she wouldn't immediately find the body, they could cover things up, they had no idea that she was a German spy. And so, of course, they had no idea that Lieutenant Colon is going to show up outside the door at the right moment because he is looking for a spy. Right, because... His girlfriend wrote down an address in a cryptic code that he's using to go a walk along the crescent and see what he might find. And he's walking up and down and trying to figure this out. And it never occurs to him. And this is, again, this is a standard Christie trope. And a lot of people use this, which is that there are certain numbers and letters that when you flip them over are still readable. They're still readable. They are a different number. She so, wrote crescent as the crescent moon symbol. A W. And it was 19. Yeah, 61. It was 61. But, but when, when you, you flip it over, it is Wilbraham Crescent number 19. He was looking at the wrong side of the paper. He was looking at the wrong side <laughs> of the paper. Yeah, he was looking, and, he was lo he was reading it the wrong way. But he was also, but the thing is, and I, I looked at the images of this last night, I can understand why, because the letterhead says Dover Castle. And so he naturally turns to the side, not realizing that she wrote on the back. She wrote it in such a way that in order to hold the piece of paper in the correct orientation, the note is wrong. She had the piece of paper upside down when she wrote it, according with the, the stationary heading. Yeah, because she was writing on the street at night in the dark. and She wasn't paying attention to where hurrying. the stationary heading was. Anybody looking at it afterwards is going to automatically turn the piece of paper right side up because it says Dover Castle at the top. It completely throws him off. And this is, again, where you have one set of criminals, the Blands and Miss Martindale, running into a different set of criminals, Christopher Moffat and Miss Pebmarsh, and they have no idea that the other set of people exist. And the dead man is a relative from Canada who came over to see who Joe Blands was is married to. Yes, he came over to see the first Mrs. Bland. In the novel, he comes over from Canada to reintroduce himself to the first Mrs. Bland because he remembered her as a girl in Canada and he's able to travel. And so he is traveling over to England specifically to see her. The Blands panic because, of course, it is wife number two and they took the money. They took this huge inheritance with Miss Martindale's help, who is, of course, Val Bland's sister. They took the inheritance what are they going to do? This guy is going to show up. They know he's coming. He's going to know instantly that Joe Bland's wife is not the Canadian heiress. He's going to know instantly. And in fact, we have seen this plot before. We saw this in Dead Man's Folly. Etienne de Souza is going to come out from Jamaica or wherever it is in the Caribbean, and he's coming out on his yacht to see Hattie. And he will know that she's not the real Hattie. And so we are seeing essentially the same same plot as Dead Man's Folly. Just thought of that, too, as we were talking <laughs> about this. Going, where have I seen, where have I heard this story before? And it just goes to show just how well Christie reuses plots. Oh, yes, it is very, very different. These are completely different set of people. There's no aristocracy involved. 
there's the paranoia about the upcoming war with Germany, which everybody knows is coming. In fact, there was another subplot involving the Waterhouses who are being suspected because Poirot notices that he used the word also at the end of the sentence, which is what Germans do. They put apparently those particular parts of speech at the end. He spoke English very well, but the order in which he spoke gave him away as German. Well, I guess. I mean, my mother is German and I've never noticed that. She's been in this country for... Well, she's been in this country for 60 years, and I don't, maybe she stopped doing that a long time ago, and she still has a heavy accent, but I don't know if that is true or not. But they've only been in this country for a couple of years, and so uh, the watermen, the waterhouses say specifically they've only been in this country for about two years. Yeah. After about Munich, probably after the Reichstag fire and, and the they Nuremberg fled. laws were coming in, they could see what was coming. So they fled at the right time. Yes, they were they were sensible. They they recognized what was coming instead of saying this can't happen here. This isn't happening. The neighbors will never turn on us. And so they become another red herring. But yep. they also point out the fact that things are happening on the continent that nobody wants to pay attention to, to consider. And the Poirot series rarely addresses what's happening. One, two, buckle my shoe probably came the closest because you had Oswald Mosley's black shirts and there was uh, the triangle at Rhodes where you have oh, Mussolini Mussol- taking over big, the island. Mussolini taking over the island. And I remember uh, where, how does your garden grow? One of the short stories, they involved the Russian embassy and there's that great big picture of Uncle Joe Stalin glowering down at everyone But in general, they don't pay a lot of attention to the increasing fear and paranoia. But this episode does in having the the Navy people. They know the war is coming and they are trying to prevent it, trying to, to push it off, trying to delay, maybe even forestall. They know something is coming. And the question is, how much of an avalanche is going to fall on you? This was a very effective adaptation, considering that it was published. The novel was published in 1963, so it was communists instead of Nazis. And moving it back, I think, actually strengthened it because you saw what the Nazis were going to do. You see what was coming. Oh, yes. I think it did strengthen it. I I think it definitely strengthened it. And I think they definitely strengthened the film was strengthened over the novel because of the way Miss Martindale deliberately targeted Sheila Webb. And in the novel, really, the only reason why she picked Sheila was the clock. But in the film, it's not just the clock. It's the idea that Sheila is that worthless tart. And because Sheila is an orphan with no family, no connections, no money, no status, she's the perfect patsy because nobody will care. She makes a good victim. The police will make their decision. It'll be obvious that it had to have been her and there won't be anybody to fight for her. And it was pure bad luck on Miss Martindale's part that the spies were involved at the same time. (laughs) So when Sheila Webb comes rushing out of the house, she rushes into the arms of the one man who can probably help her, somebody who's (laughs) feeling enormous guilt over not rescuing his previous girlfriend, not listening to the previous girlfriend, and that's why she died. And he has a chance to redeem himself by rescuing this girl who is obviously not lying. So I guess we can recommend this. Oh, yes. I thought it was really a very good episode. A very, very good episode. Oh, and by the way, the ending when Val Bland 
blurts everything out. That is taken from the novel. That was a single paragraph at the end where Inspector Hardcastle writes to Poirot and say, Mrs. Bland cracked. Well, that was Mrs. Bland cracking, but you got a lot of detail and you could see she was relieved because her husband, as it turns out, is a nasty piece of work. He made her do it. And it was only supposed to be one murder was that wonderful (laughs) line she said, like, like one one is is okay one is okay (laughs) so we could keep all the money and she was happy to spill it all out she wanted to talk but yes this has everything it's got clocks it's got spies it's got cats and it has damsels in distress both being rescued and not being rescued so they die horrible deaths under the wheels of automobiles uh It was just, it was good. It worked on every level. It worked very well. So we've come to the end of another episode. And next time we're going to be looking at the 2013 Elephants Can Remember. And we'll see what they do. I've no idea. One uh, last point coming up on Saturday, the 17th of September. 2022, Bill and I will be at the Groff Center in Lancaster participating in Books, Books, Books. We'll be there with some 50 other authors. So if you like to read uh, whatever book you're interested in, somebody there will have what you want. And it'll be a chance to talk to us in person about what we thought of the latest Agatha film. Absolutely. And this is the also Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not yeah. Lancaster, England. <laughs> Oh, right, right, right. (laughs) Oh, and not Lancaster, South Carolina, either. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And this is another episode of Agatha Christie, She Watched. This is Bill Paschal for Paschal Press. I'm Teresa, and thanks for joining us in our little office under the stairs. Agatha Christie, She Watched is Teresa Paschal and Bill Paschal. Produced by Bill Paschal. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.